This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Fiona Patton, leader of the Reason Party and Upper House member of the State Parliament in Victoria, joined me in the studio to talk about her policy priorities for the new Victorian Parliament, which include drug law reform. Then finally, Professor David Walker, a professor in Australian studies from Deakin University, joined me on the phone to talk about his essay in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. It's called Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century. This is 3 FM 102.7 FM on your dial if you're in Victoria this wonderful state that we live in. And uh, Ben Eltham from New Matilda, he is a National Affairs correspondent, if you were wondering, and he joins me, as per usual, this morning to talk federal politics. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm liking the mild weather, the one day of the week where I can be at ease. Yes, uh, I think that high in the Great Australian Bight has swung around and we're getting some southerlies for a day or so. Loving, loving it. Absolutely loving it. I think it'll be hot again tomorrow. It's going to be disgusting. Yeah, all all weekend and just in time for the air show, which I will be going to. Going to the air show? I'm pumped. I go every two years because I love fast planes. Wow, okay. Yeah. I've Very excited. Hell yes. <laughs> so I've been waiting two years for this, so yeah, it's going to be great, except uh, for the heat, which will be like 38 any, degrees. Are there any planes in particular that you're excited about? Um, yes. My favourite is the F-22. Oh, the Raptor. The Raptor, yep. It's like so loud and so fast, less agile than the um, f well, I don't know. It's a debatable, but FA-18 is a little bit, you know, can do the ups and the downs and the, you know, round and rounds and the, yeah, it's very exciting. But um, I do kind of rank them when I watch. Right, yeah. yeah. But yeah. the F-16's not back. Oh, what a shame. Such a shame, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't really endorse what they're used for, but I absolutely love the technology and engineering that is on show. Well, absolutely. They are marvellous machines of war and destruction. Yes. Yes. Exactly. But they are great to fly. I wouldn't know. (laughs) Never flowed one. (laughs) One day. One day it's going to happen, I swear. Even if just for 10 minutes. Good luck with that, mate. Yeah, thank you. Actually, segue into funny funny thing um, that came up in Senate Estimates, which, of course, I was watching, as I mentioned, as a public service for everyone else, uh, that Larry Emder, that um, co-host of one of those morning TV shows... I know who Larry Emder is. Yeah, well, I don't tend to watch those shows, but he actually did fly in a fighter jet at the... um, as courtesy of the ADF... Uh, you know, how generous of them to um, allow him to sit behind the pilot in the plane and, you know, go for a joyride for TV. Um, and they were trying to calculate just how much that costs the government to have a very, very short segment on breakfast TV to display their fabulous joint strike fighters, etc. Oh, they let Larry Emder into they a joint strike in. fighter. Yeah, isn't it amazing? <laughs> I think it was a joint strike fighter. Uh, One of the ADF fighter jets. But I was like, wow, you know, all the the most random things come up at Senate Estimates. Well, look, you know, some would say that that's a a waste of taxpayers' money. But other people would say that that that's a priceless opportunity to engage with the community on a critical national security issue. Yes, it's very inspiring to watch. Uh, Not really. Yeah. I I don't know really what the purpose of it was. Awareness raising 
Must uh, be. Well, probably, yes, I think. You know, look, they've got these shiny new toys, Amy. Yeah, you know? I know. Well, that they have to keep repairing. Yes. <laughs> like the, nonstop. Every time it rains. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's yes. amazing. Um, and certainly defence was a big focus with the submarines, um, that being a very contested issue between Penny Wong and Maurice Payne for, I think it was the Thursday. But a lot of um, scandals of varying proportions and degrees came out across estimates. And uh, although it is, you know, a bit dramatic and exciting it does raise a broader issue about accountability and transparency and um, really what kind of standards ministers but also parliamentarians are held to and multiple ministers had um, you know issues come up with their expenses primarily yeah the uh, dying days of the morrison government have turned into something of a sleaze fest uh, there's been multiple scandals of, of varying dimensions. Matthias Corman was one. That, Hello world. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> for those of you who don't know what we're talking about there, Matthias Corman uh, admitted that he'd um, flown to Singapore for free on for a family, family holiday. Family yeah. holiday. Um, it'd be, he thought that it had been paid for by the travel company Hello World. Uh, now, Hello World is run by a fellow called Andrew Burns, who just happens to be the treasurer of the Federal Liberal Party. So uh, coincidental. Yeah, and Matthias, uh, apparently when he booked these tickets, he just rang up Andrew Burns. Um, yeah. As you do, I mean, I, I don't know about you, every time I get a flight, I just ring up the CEO of Flight Centre. If I want to book an Uber, I just call the Uber CEO or general manager here. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, whenever I catch a, a tram, actually, I, I just um, ring up Jerome Weimar on um, uh, <laughs> on John Fain's tale television radio show. Um, it's so, I it's mean, absurd. Just, it's it, pretty absurd. It just sort of shows you, I think, um, firstly, how out of touch these politicians are. Yeah. And secondly, that they have major, major boundary problems when it comes to keeping, you know, these conflicts of interest separate. And um, so, you know, uh, Joe Hockey, the ambassador to the United States, has been drawn into it because he's a major shareholder of Hello World. He has a million shares in Hello World or something like this. And um, it turns out that he had uh, brokered or we're not quite sure whether he instructed or simply just encouraged... Facilitated. Facilitated uh, staff to go and meet with Hello World. And, of course, they've been given a big government contract. Really? Uh, fancy that. Oh. Yeah. So um, this is of a piece with some of the other sort of malfeasance that we discovered in estimates last week. For example, the $430 million contract that was given to a, a shady bunch of ex-army characters to do security on Manus and Nauru. Mm. Um, Which we briefly kind of went into yep, last we did, week. we did touch on that. Yeah. Um, the AWU trial involving Michaelia Cash is ongoing. In fact, yesterday we had some amazing testimony where um, one of the main witnesses contradicted earlier testimony. So we really haven't got to the bottom of who leaked the information about the raid to the media yet um, because uh, basically the two main witnesses, one guy in the Registered Organisations Commission and one guy in Cash's office, are contradicting each other. So Mm. so at least one of them has lied (laughs) under oath. Under oath, yeah. Which is very, very interesting there. Um, so yeah, I mean the uh, the probity and the, and the the ethics issues in the Morrison government go deep. 
oh, pretty much across nearly everyone. Across the board. It's crazy how many people are affected. Um, It was interesting that we got into such teensy detail over what a witness statement is versus a voluntary statement when the AFP gave evidence and suggested that uh, Minister Cash and Keenan did not provide a witness statement when requested by the AFP about these leaks and uh, Michaelia Cash spent... (coughs) hours responding to Penny Wong and uh, others saying that she did provide a statement via um, her Senate estimates Hansard transcript, which surely (laughs) is not a statement because that's not a back and forth, you know, discussion. She's not being interviewed by the AFP. Oh, this is truly dog eat my homework kind of stuff this is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, so she literally refused to cooperate with the Australian Federal Police and instead of going to an interview with them, she sent them a copy of the Hansard, which I think... Which anyone could, you know, look up. Yes. Presumably the AFP would have anyway. Uh, And as we heard in in Senate estimates, in fact, the DPP, the Federal... Uh, public prosecutor said that the reason that she didn't pursue the case further was because that Cash and Keenan did not cooperate with the police. So that's quite extraordinary if you think two ministers refused to cooperate with the Australian Federal Police. It's quite extraordinary actually. Yeah and they'd contacted their officers at least twice to follow up and ask for further information or a witness statement and that was even denied. Yep. Absolutely. Um, you know, and of course, uh, it's been convenient for Cash all along the way to refuse to answer questions in Parliament under mm. the grounds that, oh, well, there's a police investigation ongoing. Yeah. So uh, she's been uh, able to basically dodge these questions for a long time now. But I think actually D-Day is coming for Michaelia Cash. At some point, she's going to have to be compelled to answer questions about this issue. And I think at that point, she might be in some considerable legal difficulties. Yeah. It is pretty concerning. And one um, one parliamentarian who, she's now a backbencher, um, and announced really at the last minute of the last part of the sitting day of the week was Julie Bishop saying that she would not recontest her seat of Curtin uh, in the yes. upcoming federal election. Farewell, Julie. Uh, so she sails off into the sunset. Um, the uh, the most senior and and really the most prominent Liberal woman. Yes. Uh, another one leaves the Liberal Party. Was so. the deputy leader for 11 years, was Australia's first female foreign affairs minister for five years. So she had a lot of firsts under her belt and she'd certainly, as she said in her speech, increased her margin in terms of um, her primary vote by quite a lot. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly the most uh, effective front bencher for the coalition, really, throughout the, the reign of the, the Abbott-Morrison governments. So I think quite an extraordinary uh, development that they'd lose someone of that talent. And I think it just shows you how the Morrison government is going. You know, it's losing its best people. Mm. And um, I, I think the end is nigh. Well, it seems like she probably saw the writing on the wall. If she was re-elected, would she really want to risk being in a an opposition government for ages well clearly not amy clearly not because she doesn't want to do it um she could obviously be the opposition leader if she wanted to be after you know supposing that morrison loses which we think he will um but she didn't want to do that it's a pretty thankless job and you know uh, the question would have to be asked, would she even win? Because she's uh, consistently failed to win the support of her colleagues when it comes to leadership ballots. Yeah, and so many people said that uh, she has such 
broad recognition from the public, at least a public face that people know generally um, in comparison to Scott Morrison, who's still struggling to gain Absolutely. recognition. I, I think she's much better known than Morrison. Yeah. Um, she's also a great fundraiser, which is true, and she would often campaign with a lot of other uh, people in her party during election time. So she was quite a useful addition and resource to many, not just herself. Yeah, whatever you think about her politics, you know, if you've met her in person, she's incredibly polite very well organised, a formidable opponent to any politician and she'll be a great loss to the Parliamentary Liberal Party. Yeah, well, anyone who can formulate evidence-based policies definitely... losing their numbers quickly in the Liberal Party. It's kind of hard to find a really highly competent cabinet minister. Well, I mean, let's talk about her legacy. So, I mean, it's not all wonderful, uh, lovely things that we should say about Julie Bishop. She presided over a historic cut to Australia's foreign aid budget. So while she was the foreign minister, Australia really um, cut our foreign aid to its lowest level on record. She must Mm -hmm. bear some responsibility for that. Um, There were wholesale restructures within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, A lot of people lost their jobs. Um, A lot of uh, career ambassadors were shunted aside uh, to be given... Uh, so that uh, career politicians from the Liberal Party could be given plum roles like Joe Hockey in, in Washington. So, um, you know, I think well, we should... Well, no one's perfect, Ben. I absolutely agree. So you can't, you know, have rose-coloured glasses. Well, I mean, yes, I think, I think we, should take a measured, we should take a measured assessment of Bishop's career well, as foreign minister. In my view, when you look at the current cabinet makeup, it's very hard to find someone who, whether you agree or disagree with their ideology or their policies that they put in place, very few are highly competent or at least efficient and good at operating whatever department they're in charge of. No, Amy, I can't think of too many of those characters in the current It shouldn't be a, a rare skill. It's, it shouldn't be something that's rare given that these people make so much money and are paid so much to be, you know, essentially CEO levels, executives of departments. So, you know, they are heading up very big branches of government. Well, they're not, are they? They're not technically meant to be the CEOs. That's meant to be the department secretary. Well, the secretaries are there to support the government that's in place. So it's the minister who directs policy. Yeah, look, I mean, if you're going to ask me to defend the competence of the Morrison government, Amy, that it might be a very short conversation. <laughs> ben, do you want to defend the competency of the Morrison government? It's very, very hard to defend the competence of yeah. the Morrison government, particularly at the moment. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the, the latest policy announcement. Um, it's a reheat of direct action. The Emissions Reduction Fund will be given another, I think, $3 billion over 10 years. Yes, it's $200 million per year for that particular fund right, yes, that sorry, they've announced. Two, yep, um, so it ends up being $2, two, million, $2, billion $2 billion over 10 years. For that, but they've announced other components. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say about this is it's simply wasted money. It simply will not achieve emissions reductions. And how do we know that? Well, because the current emissions reduction fund, which has been operating since early 2015, has not reduced emissions. Uh, emissions were falling under the Gillard carbon price. Uh, as soon as the carbon price was abolished, emissions have started to rise again. And it's kind of as simple as that. That's mm. where we're at in carbon in Australia. We're burning more carbon than we were under Julia Gillard. And the reason is we've got rid of the regulations and we've got rid of the carbon price. And the government's risible ideas of paying polluters to stop them polluting. Uh, well, no one ever thought it would work. 
it hasn't worked and this new scheme won't work either. Exactly. Well, it was set up um, to pay farmers and businesses to cut their carbon dioxide pollution. So there's a whole range of ways of which those people may do it. But Melissa Price, the Environment Minister, did finally engage in, in, in interviews yesterday. It's been, you know, hard oh, to yes, actually she's been hiding. get her yes. an interview with she's her. She's literally been sort of hiding away from the media. I think she was probably in intensive media training or something because she didn't do so well at the beginning of her tenure. No, I think it's, this is a good example of where the Morrison government's at. I mean, you know, they've got people like Melissa Price who um, do not appear to be top talent when it comes to just day-to-day media appearances or even understanding their brief. Uh, to to be totally fair to Melissa Price, I mean, she's defending the indefensible, which is the Coalition's environmental record and their policies, which are absolutely appalling. So it is very hard for her. Uh, you know, and the current policy is a good example. Uh, yes, it will reduce emissions a little bit uh, and it'll be very expensive in doing that but it won't stop Australia's overall emissions from rising because there's no policy to stop them from rising and of course Australia is not on track to meet our Paris climate change commitments not only are we not going to meet them in a canter we're not going to meet them at all. Yes, exactly. Well, Melissa Price, um, she was asked yesterday uh, on the ABC whether um, she can understand or put forward other evidence that um, that the government has, that maybe the interviewer did not have, that showed or proved her point, which she was making, which she, which all the government has been making, which is to say that their emissions have been coming down. That is not the case. That's yeah. not even what her own department has oh, put in graphs. It's kind of the worst. I mean, you know, you, we expect politicians to lie. We hear them lie all the time. But this one is one of the most... One of the baldest of the faces of the bald face lies. And, you know, it's really hard to know what to say to this. Uh, the, the official data shows that emissions are rising. Uh, and everything that we know about emissions tells us that they're rising because we've got rid of any regulations to stop emissions from being emitted. So um, the government just keeps saying that emissions are falling. They're, they're just not. It's just, no. It really is a lie. Well, it, it kind of makes everyone who tries to ask that question dumbfounded at how what the response is, which is essentially she ignores the question and says, we've put together a great plan. Here's our plan. And she just repeats the exact same message, which is not even vaguely answering the question because she doesn't have an answer because the emissions are going up. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that we're having this circus or, you know, circular arguments nonstop about really basic facts. Well, yeah, it is crazy and it's what it is is tragic because actually, I mean, we're talking about the future of the planet here. This is the most important public policy issue of the 21st century. It doesn't get more important, I wouldn't have thought, than the survival of the biosphere to sustain human life. And yet these are the kind of you know silly games that the government is playing and we know why they're playing them because they don't actually believe in climate change they don't want to do anything about it they certainly don't want to take on their big vested interests that fund the party um and and so it's as simple as that they've come up with you know basically this policy that's it's really there just to have a talking point really to be able to you know obfuscate Mm. we've got a policy there it is 
Well, it, it's truly bullshit in that kind of technical Harry Frankfurt sense of the term bullshit. This, this is a philosopher who wrote a book a few years ago called On Bullshit, and he said the, the definition of bullshit is not that I'm telling a lie. The definition is it doesn't really matter what I'm saying, whether it's true or not, and I don't care whether it's true or not. I'm just trying to distract you from the other issues at play here. And yes. that's exactly what's going on with the coalition. Exactly. Not discussing perhaps how we might meet our Paris climate target and debating the means that we would get there. But, you know, we're just having this discussion over whether our emissions are going up or down. And the tragedy of this is that Labor is getting a leave pass on their climate policy, Mm. which is not very good either. So the current state of play is the government's got Tony Abbott's climate policy and Labor's got Malcolm Turnbull's climate policy, if you can believe that. Labor has adopted the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, which Turnbull, by the way, never implemented because the coalition could not bring itself to vote for something that would reduce emissions. But everyone agrees the NEG is not a very good policy. Why won't Labor go back to Julia Gillard's carbon price? That's a really good question. It's one I've asked this morning, you know, to a few people. We can't get an answer on that, but it's obviously the best policy. If you want to reduce emissions, why not go back to the policy that we know did reduce emissions, which was the one that worked from 2012 to 2014? Mm. Well, it's concerning if Labor, for example, is campaigning on implementing a NEG, that is their platform for energy and climate policy, if they are elected, then they have a mandate to put that policy in place. So, you know, if they did want to change their mind, it's going to be very difficult to manoeuvre, particularly in this very heated policy area, which we've seen prime ministers fall just over these policy issues. Yeah, and and Labor's policy is also a kind of obfuscation because the NEG is a form of energy emissions intensity scheme, so there's still an implicit carbon price involved in the NEG, but it just has to be organised in a very complex way. Mm. And the problem with the NEG is it will only cover the energy sector. It won't cover the other aspects of the economy that also emit carbon, and there's lots of those, obviously agriculture, obviously construction, there's plenty. So, you know, Labor doesn't have a single policy really to deal with the non-energy carbon sector and and that's a big issue. Yeah. Well, um, the other issue, this the reason why we've, um, well, the Coalition has adopted a climate change policy is because they are threatened at the election by a range of independents who have decided that that will be one of their core uh, policy priorities and Basically, apart from climate change, they're quite conservative um, and, you know, perhaps centre-right, centre really. They're, they're definitely... Some are even former Liberal Party members like um, Oliver Yates... Oliver Yates, yes. ..who's running against Josh Frydenberg in the seat of Kuyong. So, ele- electability, the Liberal parties have gone, OK, we need to do something on climate. But another element of electability is women and the fact that uh, there are so few women now who will be pre-selected in winnable seats in the lower house that we could be seeing a wipeout of liberal women for years to come well maybe we've already seen that i don't know i mean there's precious few in the liberal party already so it's kind of hard to see how it could get worse but maybe it can still get worse it is getting worse because the women who are resigning 
not are being replaced by men. By men, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's right. And over the weekend, <laughs> I, I note yeah. that the seat of Stirling, which is a Western Australian seat, there was a pre-selection where four women ran and one man ran. There was one who was the favourite, which was a woman, and uh, was supported by two major um, coalition front benches from this from Western Australia. And the man uh, won. He's a former um, defence force person. He works for Woodside, um, and so that was. A, a bit shocking to some people. Michael Keenan wanted a woman to replace him. And then we saw uh, the day after, I think, um, the seat of Higgins, which, of course, was Kelly O'Dwyer's seat, and Kelly won't be recontesting the next election. And that did end up being uh, a woman. It was Katie Allen, who is a professor in allergy, particularly child allergies, um, at the Royal Children's. So she has been pre-selected and she actually ran in the seat of Paran at the state level. So we did eventually get one woman replacing a woman, but it's so rare that, yeah, we're going to yeah see so few women actually elected. Yeah, well, I mean, as we've discussed many times on the show, you know, the Liberal Party has a deep-seated cultural issue here. It doesn't believe in quotas. Uh, it, it doesn't believe in feminism, frankly, um, as Bishop famously said of herself that she wasn't a feminist. So um, if you don't believe in equal equal equality, <laughs> then I guess you get into the situation where, where the Liberal Party's at now. Um, it seems to be getting worse, though, because, you know, we are getting to the levels that will be below John Howard's. Yeah, I don't know why anyone's surprised. I mean, the prevailing culture within the Liberal Party is incredibly macho. It's in, you know, it is much more right wing than the general electorate. Um, it is quite conservative. It's sort of movement conservative, kind of um, no, not so much small C conservative. So um, all of these forces are, are long term institutional factors at play within the Liberal Party that make it very difficult for women to to get it pre-selected. Mm. And the Liberal Party, as we've said, has been moving more to the right and certainly they view their base as being right, even though, of course, everyone knows that most people or at least a, the broad population fall somewhere in the centre. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, this is just part of, of where, why the government's in so much trouble. You know, they're increasingly unrepresentative in the truly, in that true sense of, of do they even look like the general population of Australian voters? And as we know, of course, the majority of Australians are women. But, you know, I, I don't see any short-term fix to this within the Liberal Party. What will be required is wholesale reform, and um, I don't see that happening anytime soon. No. Well, they've looked into that, haven't they, and conducted inquiries and come up with solutions, and the solution has always been an aspirational target that we will try to get to somehow by some means and maybe we'll you know, create a fund for some women and we'll do a training program to get them feeling confident. But the one thing that is a little bit concerning Concerning is that you often hear a pipeline discussion, oh, they just aren't the women. Well, we've seen in so many pre-selections a majority of women putting their hand up who are, you know, highly regarded business people in their local electorates and not getting a look in. So it surely can't be that there's a lack of women. No, of course it's not about a lack of women. It's about the power dynamics within the Liberal Party. So who gets to decide who's in the, the Liberal Party? Well, ultimately it's the, the powerful factional bosses and the, and the pre-selecting members of those branches. And while they make the decisions that they make, then I don't think things will change. You know, uh, Either we need an influx of more moderate people into the Liberal Party or women need to form a powerful faction that can manoeuvre 
power within their own party. Neither mm. of those things have happened yet. It did happen in the 1950s, so it's doable, but uh, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. It's, it's one of those things, too, in, in a party that prides itself on individual liberties and freedoms, uh, unlike, say, the Labor Party, which is completely comfortable with factions representing certain demographic blocks. The Liberal Party is much less so. And so, you know, it, it, you do have much more reluctance to, to see sort of a, a block of, of women emerging as an actual faction within the Liberal Party that would campaign on, on policy issues around, for example, women's, women's policy issues. That, that just hasn't happened. Yeah, but it did because it was more socially acceptable to do that much many, many years ago when women were segregated from men. Yeah, so I think, you know, if we go back to the 1950s, I mean, one reason why that could happen is that uh, women were an incredibly important demographic for the for the post-war Liberal Party and, you know, um, and Menzies was incredibly yeah, popular. Yeah, to set it up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the CWA and things like that. So Australian Women's National League. Uh-huh, yeah. So I don't need to tell you all this stuff. No, because I did a lecture on it. <laughs> Um, so, but, you know, and well, maybe you can tell me what, what's happened, what's changed since then. Well, it's the moving to the right. Yeah. It's the fact that the, there are so few moderates. You know, I think back to Judy Moylan, for example. She is one of the those, you know, trailblazing women in Western Australia who had a pretty tough go of even convincing her own electorate to keep her, but she was a great local member and uh, so hardworking. But she had so many socially moderate, progressive views and was a conscience of the Howard government for many things, you don't really see people or parliamentarians like her. No, there's very few of the the moderate liberal in, at all in, in the current party. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the whole moderate wing really has been extinguished since Howard. Exactly. Well, Ben, there's an election to sort that out. So we'll uh, keep an eye on the policy announcements as they continue. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. No worries. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And we've been talking about all the latest in federal politics. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted now to have with me back in the studio Fiona Patton, who is a member of the Upper House in the State Victorian Parliament. She is the leader of the Reason Party. She founded that party and uh, she represents the Northern Metropolitan Area. So she's in Triple R Heartland, which is exciting. Thank you very much, Fiona, for coming back. Yeah, thanks. Amy and it is great to be back at Triple R. In fact, just fun fact, yes. my region of North Metropolitan has more community radio stations than any other region in Victoria. Oh, wow. More breweries really cool. as well, but <laughs> <laughs> whether there's a link. <laughs> yes, there may be, mm, could be. But I just want to talk to you a bit about the election, obviously, mm. that just happened at the end of last year. Yes. And on election night, um, many people would have been pretty shocked at the extent of the change in terms mm. of the, the Labor win, which was massive. Yes. Um, I think people expected it could have been a bit closer. And also that some of those um, Liberal seats in typically Liberal areas had gone Labor, particularly Hawthorne. That's which right. Obviously, John Pesuto was pretty shocked himself mm. Mm. on election night. Um, but your particular circumstance, you know, you had to wait quite a while to find out uh, the results. It was 
wasn't necessarily obvious and upper house gets counted after lower house or at least finalised. How long did you have to wait to find out? I honestly did not know until they declared the election. So that was pretty much a good two weeks after and we all had to go into the showground, into one of the pavilions there and they would press a button and... Oh, roll gosh. down the numbers <laughs> and I until my name came up on that screen uh, I had you know. I was not certain so it was yeah it was kind of I was quite nervous because also some of the media well a lot of the media were there yeah. and they, they want to get that initial reaction so they'd said to me look we'll yeah. lose we're going to do a story so they would so <laughs> I just had a camera in my face going don't Burp. Don't pick try. your nose. <laughs> Don't pick your nose. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So it was a it was a tense day, but it was a, it was an interesting two weeks in the in the lead up and the waiting period. Yeah. Well, you had the premier um, Daniel Andrews say he would offer you a job. Yes. Didn't say exactly what that job would be. It was kind of random. I know. And that, <laughs> but that was I have to say that like that really softened it and it really yeah. made it. A lot more interesting and it it also uh, meant that I got quite a few calls from other people saying well if you don't like the job the premier offers you um, give us a call the bidding war yeah so That's that really was it funny. was that was nice and that really did make make the wait easier because mm. I knew that there was a future and also I was actually yeah I also was able to say you've done a lot in that first four you've you did. You did. Got quite a bit done in that first mm. four years, and you were part of some really historic change in those first four years. So no regrets. Yes, and you've made an impression, obviously. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah, a good one. Right. <laughs> that's great to hear. And we did talk a little bit about um, some of those things that you achieved in the last interview mm. that we had, mm. and. One of those things was uh, the safe exclusion zones around uh, abortion clinics yes. and making sure that people weren't, you know, there was a lot of protesters that used to stand, you know, alongside that road and outside clinic doors that would be really obviously off-putting and distressing for any person. It was awful. Yeah. It was really awful, you know, calling um, women murderers as they walked in, harassing the staff. I mean, the staff mm. were harassed on a daily basis by these yeah. people and obviously the, the the patients of the clinic were harassed when they went in there and you know sometimes they when someone seeks a termination it is not an easy decision and you know there's so many numerous reasons for why people do that so to be judged and harassed and harangued as you were going into the clinic or leaving the clinic was really difficult and I was mm. very pleased that we got that legislation through. It's being challenged in the High Court at the moment um, and we expect the judgment to come down any day now and I, I'm i fairly confident that they will... Um, that they will fall on the right side. Um, I was speaking to a barrister about it recently and she said it was very noticeable how many women are in the High Court now and that that seemed to affect and and may affect uh, the decision on on this matter. Wow, that's great. Yeah, Mm. there have been a lot more female appointments, haven't there? There has. Yeah. There has, yes. That's good. Yeah, obviously it's a little bit um, different to the Supreme Court in America that's going backwards. Mm, I'm pleased that we we seem to have a far far better system for selecting Mm. our judiciary. 
And also, obviously, the state Labor Party have had a policy in place for quite a number of years now to have 50% of new appointments to, um, you know, justices or judges mm. and courts that, that they must be women, same as that government boards, yeah. paid roles. I, I think, it, I think it, it is great and I think it's really important that we want our judiciary to be reflective of our community. So, you know, it's not to say that women are better in those jobs, but balance definitely is. I've certainly seen that in, in, in Parliament, how having that, that gender balance does does create, in my mind, better outcomes. Well, we've seen at the federal level some pretty big news like, for example, Julie Bishop um, mm. not recontesting her seat of curtain at the next federal election. Some people say, oh, I'm not very surprised, but I think others might have been hoping that perhaps, given that she's not too old, she has many more years technically left, you know, in politics if she wanted to stay, she yeah. could and she may have become perhaps uh, if they didn't win the the election, she may have become the opposition leader and who knows. Usually my my reflection was often when things go badly, they get a woman to come in and clean up the mess. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, that's right. Yes, to do the, heart, the heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but given when she did uh, run for the leadership, after the Malcolm Turnbull spill and even her uh, colleagues in WA didn't mm. support her, I'm almost surprised she stayed there this long. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I, it's galling. I think, yeah. I don't don't think I, I would have been able to have rem- remained quite as composed as she did mm. over the last year um, given the sort of the backstabbing that she received during that time. I think it really did open the curtains mm. for some outsiders perhaps who weren't aware of just how uh, ruthless politics That's can right. be. And I th- I was hearing, I believe my numbers are correct, that there there's 11 women now in the Liberal government um, and seven of them are in marginal seats. So, I mean, this is, you know, these numbers are devastating and if they do not change that, they, they will... Um, yeah, they will. They will. They will be out of government for a very, very, very long time. Well, one of the arguments that used to be used to actually have these reforms, particularly the Labor Party, was to say, "Well, we won't be appealing to women voters if we don't represent them and they don't see themselves in us." That's exactly right, Amy. And there was it. There's a. There's a interesting um, study that's done each year called the Edelman Trust Barometer, and it looks at trust. Women are the least trusting of their governments. We trust, like almost mm. by about ten percent, we trust governments less than men do. But in that in that trust barometer, what they look at is where do we trust, and we trust people like ourselves. So it's not surprising that women are less trusting of government when they don't see themselves in it. Um, so I I think Labor, and for Labor, it has been a long it. They started this process, what, 30 years mm-hmm. ago? So they've been m- moving on this for a very long time and the opposition just has refused to move on this. Yeah, they're still in aspirational target land, which is not yeah. going to change anything really. Absolutely not. You know, they, they, did, um, they did pre-select a, a woman for the seat of Higgins and that Katie was... Katie Allen, yes. Yeah, that was pleasing to see. But she's going to have a... You know, that... That may be a tough seat to win, given yes. what happened in the state election. Well, there were a lot of questions 
being asked straight after the state election as to how those inner city seats would go. And yes. that, I mean, that was Peter Costello's old seat. So many people think that's a very safe seat. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But they also thought that, um, you know, uh, Hawthorne was a safe yeah. seat. Well, it's funny that John Pesuto would have probably been the leader of the Liberal Party here mm. at the state level if he had have won or kept his yes. seat. Yes. And, you know, my experiences working with him was that he was a he was a relatively moderate person and did see things in a less conservative way. I think it came across on election night when he was talking about how the coalition had behaved during the campaign, what, you know, their failings might have been. He was quite honest, self-aware and um, congratulatory and fair-minded. I agree. And certainly I I hope that we are starting to see some of that reflection from the Liberal Party. I hope that we will see, uh, you know, we will see them rise to meeting the government, the, the community's expectations of them. Victoria is a progressive state. We want progressive politicians mm. on both sides of the House. So let's talk a little bit about the composition of the parliament now, given we've just been mentioning the fact that there's almost gender balance mm. at the lower house. Um, there aren't that many liberal women. I just quickly checked and there's four out of 21 in the lower house um, versus the ALP having 25, which is 45.5%. Yep. And the Nats have two which I'm guessing is Stephanie Ryan and did Emma get Emma re-elected? Yeah. that's right. So there's two great women there. And then in the upper house, though, um, when I looked at the proportions, mm. it's 47.5% female overall, which yes. is amazing. How different is that compared to the previous upper house it's makeup? The, the upper house last last term was actually probably around 35%. So it was, yeah. it was fairly high. But that was largely because there were five Greens and they were women. Yeah. Um, and there's only one. One Green yeah. now. That's right. Uh, and most of those most of those crossbench positions have actually been um, – have gone to men. Actually, no, that's not true. There's there's three women on the crossbench now um, as Yourself. opposed to myself, uh, Tanya Maxwell from the Darren Hinch Party yep. and uh, Catherine Cumming who is um, an independent now. She was from the Hinch Party. She left left them the day she was elected, pretty much. <laughs> That's pretty quick. It was very quick, yes. <laughs> so in terms of the minor parties, there's uh, 11 seats and then the coalition holds 11 seats. Mm. So you have a huge voting block if you all agreed which I'm not sure whether you will, but I don't know. That'd be interesting to see whether the fact that you have such a large number of people in your block. Well, yeah, in in some ways it's actually a bit less than we had last time, Um, although the crossbench is obviously – the crossbench is largely the same numbers if you had included the greens in the crossbench. So there was five greens – and five crossbenchers. Yep. So there was 10 and now there's 11. Um, so the numbers, the government has increased numbers. So the government has gone from 14 members to 18 members. So now they only need, th- so they need three votes to get across the line. This does probably make the coalition largely irrelevant. So in the last term, if the government wanted to get law and order legislation in, for example, mm. And they couldn't rely on my vote or that of the Greens. Uh, they they needed the coalition. 
to get legislation across the line. Now they just need three members of the crossbench to get legislation across the line. Yeah. So I think that I think they're feeling pretty confident, and I I hope it doesn't lead to cockiness. And I think certainly we were going to touch on it, but the IBAC legislation yes. is well. That's a great interesting segue. point to that that they introduced um, the integrity it's very early as well, and just slipped in there. I know, and it does make you wonder why. I mean, the Integrity and Accountability Bill, a lot of it was good. It was about further protecting whistleblowers. But what they slipped in there was a change to IBAC and its ability to have public Public hearings. hearings. And we know that shining that sunlight via a public hearing actually does a lot of good. And we saw that with the education public inquiry where it actually brought out a lot more uh, it, a lot more people who had been rotting the system in, in the edu- education system. So we actually saw mm. more people exposed through that and now raising the bar on those public inspections, investigations, uh, means that we are, yeah, we are tying their hands somewhat. Um, I think that's very concerning. Well, it's kind of odd that they did add that and raise the bar. But given that at the federal level we've had all these arguments about how we need public hearings because that's that's not even in the coalition's plan for a federal integrity commission. Um, So obviously why would you make it harder to have public hearings? And one of the arguments that's been tossed around is that, oh, you know, we need to protect people's reputations if they're not actually engaging in misconduct. Presumably their reputation wouldn't be tarnished if it was public and the hearing said they weren't engaging in misconduct. Exactly, Amy. I don't get exactly. it. <laughs> I, I asked a, a series of questions in Parliament um, during the committee process to the Minister trying to understand why they were doing this. And he didn't. He was not able to articulate a, a single a single example of where the public, the current system didn't work. We've had six public investigations since IBAC was formed in Victoria and I asked him, were any of those um, detrimental to anyone's reputation? No, they weren't. Um, And when the IBAC commissioner himself publicly states great concern over this change, I think that warrants um, concern. So I... The, the the coalition actually put up an amendment um, to, to keep the threshold the to same? keep the threshold the same, right? Uh, but the government found three three crossbenchers to support them, yeah. and it well they found more. It was passed easily, right? I think it would be worth referencing what Robert Redlick, the IBAC commissioner, said just so we can, you know, feel the gravity of his words, which was, quote, the only reason I can see why anyone would want to impose this level of limitation is to appease a particular interest group, a powerful interest group, which he told the committee hearing in May last year. That's right. And I raised, I I quoted, I I quoted the commissioner in the, um, in my contribution and I quoted him again and asked that question to the minister how did he respond to those comments and he honestly couldn't give an adequate response to it and when you think that we are legislating against the organization that investigates politicians Mm. and they're saying we need this level of investigation 
I don't think we should be the ones disputing that. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's troubling. There's a massive conflict of interest. Massive conflict Huge. of interest. So this will be interesting and it, we will need to see that the government doesn't get cocky um, where, yeah, when they know they need three, three people from the crossbench to get legislation through and that, that gives them a lot more power. And there are some in the crossbench, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, there's like the shooters and fishers, mm-hmm. um, and they were seeking to introduce a bill or a move, motion, wasn't it, it's... to um, let women arm themselves with mm. pepper spray mm. and what was the other thing? Tasers. Tasers. Yes. Well, that's a useful weapon to have in your handbag, isn't it? That's right. I don't know. No, no, it's just, you know, you can see now you've got your mobile phone pocket in your handbag yeah. and now you'll have your taser, taser pocket. Spot. Yep. Um, yes, I, I, um, I could not support that motion and I was appalled that it was put up. And, you know, fun fact, the um, Fraser Anning put up exactly the same motion in the federal parliament, and that mm. was what instigated that whole David Linehelm v Sarah Hansen Young oh, really? um, battle. It was over mm. the it was over the debate on that exact um, exact motion. Um, the Liberal Democrats raised the exact same motion in West Australia, um, and now the Shooters and Fishers have raised it here, and it did not get support. Well, I can see why people might have concern for women given that domestic violence is really threatening women's lives. That's right. And children's lives. Um, But also we saw, you know, some pretty shocking things happen recently with a woman leaving the tram, walking alongside the road to get home and then obviously being murdered, which is horrible. And so I can see why some people might kind of jump to find a solution to something which is, you know, really emotive and terrible and horrific. But what is a real solution to that problem. That's right. Potentially not providing more arms, more weapons that other people might access or just misuse without intending to. That's right. We know that... You know, if you look at if you look at at, at, at gun gun at guns as an example, we know that when women have guns, they're more likely to be killed by guns. That's just a fact. So, I, you know, to carry and it and it completely um, it diverts us from the actual issue around violence against women or the actual issues. One is more likely to happen at home. So I'm not sure what you're going to do. Put a taser in your bedside table, um, and and two that it's about changing attitudes that make men think that violence against women is okay. Um, I think we also have to reflect on the fact that the person that attacked Eurydice Dixon and the person that attacked Aya both had significant mental health issues. And And I welcome the Royal Commission into Mental Health and I hope that that also helps us address some of the violence that that is occurring in our streets. And I, for one, you know, walked home the, the night before we made that contribution or that motion was debated. I walked home. Yes, I didn't walk home on the dark street. I walked home on the well-lit street. Yes, I didn't wear headphones. Yes, I did those sorts of things to to ensure that I was safe. But I am not going to walk not going to stop walking home and I'm not going to stop, you know, catching trams late at night and I'm not going to stop walking through a park. Um, and I, I shouldn't have to. We have to remember that, you know, yes, 
those those violent, you know, um, strange stranger acts of violence by strangers happens, but it is rare. It is actually violent acts by people you know that is more likely um, to to cause harm. Yeah, well, it's a great point. The Royal Commission is going to be starting up very soon yes. because we've just had the commissioners appointed. Yes. It's great to see gender balance and a female yes. chair, which yes. is fantastic. Um, and obviously it said there'll be like an interim report towards the end of 2019 this year. That's right. So that's also you know pretty quick yes. that we're getting movement on this issue. Yeah, I think this is because I think there are some significant issues that almost should be urgently mm. addressed. So having that interim report, I hope, does mean that we can actually start the work that is required to refocus our, our approaches to mental health. Because in many ways, it's probably, we, spend a, we do spend a lot of money, we probably don't spend enough, but we're spending it at the acute end. And that's yeah. why we have to spend so much because we're not spending it. Yeah, it's um, not a prevention. In, in the prevention end. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And, mm. You know, we know that 70, 70 or 80% of our prison population has a mental health issue. Um, certainly when, I, when you look at the coroner's reports from overdoses in, in our community, I think that there was like 60% of the people who had died from an overdose had been diagnosed with a mental health issue or a mental health illness. And so if we can start, yeah, going back to the beginning and start addressing prevention and early and early treatment rather than having to throw the big bucks at the acute at the acute end. Well, I remember attending breakfasts when the budget was being released and mm. you'd have all of the stakeholders and the lobby groups in the room and they'd ask the various ministers questions or maybe make a very strident comment mm. and often what you would see from the AMA I think in Victoria was what about mental health funding, you know, yeah. at all levels, not just, right. you know, these these beds in this hospital. That's right. Um, so it certainly was very much on the community radar for a long time yes. and didn't necessarily get a huge amount of traction politically until recently. That's right. And I, you know, and I think it, it is wonderful that we are shining the spotlight on it and, and a Royal Commission will do that. Uh, but it's the implementation of those recommendations. And, you know, to the credit of this government, they have been implementing most of the family violence recommendations. Uh, so that's, that's positive and I hope that that will, that, will, that will happen on this one as well. Yeah. I'm very pleased that drugs will be part of this inquiry in the terms of reference, have included alcohol and drug use um, in, in the mix. So that, that that's great. So hopefully mm. we will see some policies around decriminalisation, around increasing our budget on harm reduction because, you know, if you look at the drug, bu- the drug enforcement budget or the bu- budget we spend on drug policy, only 2% of it is spent on harm reduction at the moment. Wow. Mm. What's the rest going to? Largely enforcement. Right. Largely enforcement. Yeah, so we yeah. spend probably about one point, nationally about $1.5 billion on enforcement. It's a very hard figure to quantify. Um, but as we know, last week it was, they, they quantified how many how, how, how many drugs we are taking yeah. to this wastewater and $9.3 oh, yeah. billion dollars worth. So, mm. um, And also prescription drugs often don't get mentioned, but they are also right. abused and used in a whole range of ways that aren't yeah. necessarily the way the doctor intended them. That's right. And we, I think this is going to be an emerging issue. We, you know, 
it's well, it is actually an urgent issue now when more people die from a prescription drug overdose than they do from from illicit drugs. Mm. Uh, less people seek treatment from prescription. If they are addicted to prescription drugs, it's very rare for them to seek to seek treatment through the alcohol and drug system. And we've now got we've now got the rollout of real time prescription monitoring, which will it will be interesting to see what effect that has. Yes, um, it's being trialled, isn't it, in the like Geelong area broadly? That's right. So yeah. in the Geelong area, they've they've rolled it out. We're not. We haven't. I haven't received many details. My concern is that once people do get cut off, then they what move. What happens? Yeah, then they yeah. move to the illicit market, and mm. that's what we've seen in the states and what we've seen in Canada. And once they move into that illicit market, we start seeing the introduction of fentanyl and car fentanyl into our illicit into our illicit market, mm. and that is going to be very dangerous. Yeah. So you don't obviously want to have some unintended consequences. That's right. Do you? That's yeah. right. And certainly, you know, if people are doctor shopping and getting their prescription that way um, by cutting them off without any treatment, so you know, are we putting you know suboxone? Are we offering them you know opioid replacement therapy? What are we doing there? And that certainly hasn't been clear. Certainly, if you're going to do a trial in that, you would think there'd be. That's- <laughs> That's right, Amy. A, a backup plan for yes. when that happens, That's when people right. stop getting access to the drug that they yep. may have been addicted to. That's right. And we know that opioid prescription opioid use is much higher in regional areas than it is in our urban areas. And I think, you know, we are going to see, I, I think we are going to see um, a, a rise in the illicit market in those areas if we don't address this in a sensible way. Yes, and I covered on the show um, maybe two months ago, I think, the increasing use of drugs like pregabalin and gabapentin, which are anticonvulsants and anti-epileptic drugs. Mm. And when, you know, utilised in a different way, are replacing some of these other prescription medications because these ones aren't actually as restricted as right. the others. So that's also, you know, one issue which I'm not sure whether it would be captured in the current trial. I am not sure either, and mm. that's that's really interesting because I don't think that that's one of the sort of named prescriptions. Yeah, so they're, it's they're looking... kind of emerging. It's been emerging in the last few years, and it's very uh, well known in America, but I think it's lesser understood here. Yes. Although we just saw um, the reason why I covered it was because there was new ambulance data out about overdoses on those particular drugs. Right. So it's a, a refereed journal article on that particular oh, issue. Thank you. I'll look into so, that because yeah. Yeah, certainly benzodiazepines and opioid mm. uh, and opiate um, medication are the two that the prescription monitoring is planning to target. Yeah. One thing that we do know and the research tells us is if you've got wide availability of medicinal cannabis, you have greatly reduced opioid deaths um, and you have actually reduced opioid use. So... That would be a no-brainer for this government to enable patient access to medicinal cannabis, which is still extremely it's very difficult. very restricted, isn't it? 
In terms of the um, reforms that were passed, because I think they were quite narrow, was it only for a select group of people and I think largely children who were suffering from a kind of epilepsy? That's right. So when when the um, legislation, the first medicinal cannabis legislation was passed in Victoria, and that was great, it was only for children. Now, since then, we've had a federal piece of legislation. We've got a federal system. So that's now broadened that out. But still... Two years later, there's less than 2,000 patients being able to access medicinal cannabis, uh, which, which is crazy. Hundreds and thousands of people would benefit from or could benefit from medicinal cannabis. Um, but the doctors tell me it's just so difficult to prescribe. And then we've got the added difficulty that if you are prescribed it, you can't drive. where you can drive if you're on benzodiazepines or Mm. um, Oxycontin. So you don't, you you can still continue to drive as long as you're not impaired. But on medicinal cannabis, you cannot drive at all even if you are not impaired because of our drug driving laws. So that needs to change and I'm I'm certainly hoping to change that. Well, obviously you see the drug testing buses that the police have out quite mm. often. Presumably they would be able to pick up whether you had cannabis in your system, That's right. whether it was by legal or illegal That's means. Right. That's right. Yeah. So that so that that is the issue. So, you know, we we have exemptions for for, for other prescription medication with those drug tests. So if you're t- tested positive for say an amphetamine but you've actually got a prescription for dex for dexamphetamines or something like that. Um then then you are excluded from that you haven't there's no offence. So that's that's a um an, an exemption to the to the offence, but we haven't done that for medicinal cannabis. So, and even some of the the highest CBD products, which have absolutely no psychoactive effect, very often will have a small amount of THC in them. Again, not yeah. enough to give you any impairment, but enough to get you busted. Really, the only mechanism in terms of those other drugs is to say may cause drowsiness. That's right. On, on the drug well, packet. Well, and if you're given a, a heavy painkiller or something, yeah. your, your doctor probably or your chemist says don't, you know, don't drive after you've taken these. Um, but that's, you know, but you can drive if you're not taking them when you, or you can drive the next morning. Yeah. So if you've had a sleeping tablet the night before, there's nothing wrong with you driving the next day. If you have some medicinal, medicinal cannabis to help you sleep the night before, you can't drive the next day. And because we're the o- one of the only jurisdictions that has random drug testing, it's very hard to find other models, overseas models that work there because overseas you can't drive if you're impaired. That's it. And they take a blood test and they, they, have, they now have a sort of a, a 0.05, as it were, for, for, for THC mm. in those jurisdictions. But that's quite a complicated test. And we couldn't do that at a roadside drug testing. Yeah, so at, on a mass scale. Yeah. That, that's right. That's mm. right. So we're trying to find the avenues to, to enable people to, to drive um, if, if they've been prescribed medicinal cannabis. Well, let's talk about the fact that you are trying to decriminalise drugs mm. and the whole issue of drug use, um, particularly though you've had a focus on cannabis yes. and obviously does have a medicinal aspect that we've been talking about for pain, for example, um, which is a massive issue mm. that many Australians face, but also um, you wanted to legalise it more broadly. So it could be taken recreationally, but 
it would entail regulation and it would also entail taxation. Mm. So how far are you into this journey? Because obviously it won't happen overnight. But no, it won't. How are you going on that front? Look, I've... I've I've introduced what I've what what you what you call a first reading of a bill. So that's really the long title of the legislation, uh, which explains the the objectives of the legislation. So I've I've introduced the cannabis regulations bill, and the point of it is largely to keep cannabis out of the hands of children and criminals. Um, and to provide a regulatory licensed system for the supply um, the supply of cannabis in Victoria. That's where we're up to. Yeah. We, we're starting to develop the legislation and I'm certainly uh, looking at Canada largely for that because they have been the most the, uh, the country that has most recently, legalized cannabis and it's um, a commonwealth system uh, it's I, I see that they have taken a very a more cautious a cautious approach to what we've seen in the more free market styles of California Colorado Nevada and and some of the American states um, and a less regulated approach than a, a country like Uruguay which has taken on a a very government, uh, a government-owned approach to mm. it. I've started having conversations with government about it. Um, I haven't had like an absolute no, <laughs> but yeah. I know that this is going to be something that I'm going to have. We're going to have to bring people along. We're going to have mm. to bring the community along. We know the community is is ever increasingly uh, recognizing that regulation is better than prohibition and. The police in Victoria recognise that the cannabis industry in Victoria is worth about $1.5 billion. So imagine if you Huge. took that out of yeah. organised crime. Um, so it's, it's, we're at the conversation point. I suspect you know, it, it may require and I would welcome a, a community conversation about it, whether that's through a parliamentary inquiry or through something like a citizen's jury. Mm. You definitely need a lot of consulting. That's right. Yeah. And I think you want to bring the community with, with you. And Canada did that. And they, over two years, they consulted widely. They worked really broadly um, across communities and particularly those most affected communities. And I would suggest in, it would not be dissimilar to us that quite often drug use and the effects of it are most, most felt by the more disadvantaged parts of our community. And certainly um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, for example. Well, drug use is certainly a major issue in this state, but also other states mm. we've seen with New South Wales. It's become a major issue, an election issue, <sighs> yes. in fact. I was really interested to see that the polling that had been done around the community support for things like pill testing was actually pretty great. Like yes. in terms of the ALP voting public, it was 73%, Green 74%, and even the LNP uh, was 57%. Yes. So that's pretty, you know, progressive-minded to say, yeah. well, we accept that young kids may be taking drugs and mm. we could not stop all of them from taking them what's the next best that's right option and you know if and then when you look at the polling of the under 30s that sits at about 80 yeah. percent across the board so this is a youth issue uh i i am still bewildered as to why 
the government, the Victorian government, will not allow a trial. I asked the health minister numerous questions on this. She refused to answer them. Um, they, they will not tell me who is advising them not to support it except the police. Mm, when yeah. you've got the Australian Medical Association, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Emergency Doctors, the nurses, the mid, you know, the nurses, emergency nurses, ambulance drivers. There's, there's, no, it's hard to find someone who doesn't support it, with the exception of the Victorian Police, and and now the Victorian Government. So we will keep pushing this. It will be an election issue in New South Wales, and. I, I think that this government really must change their attitude and approach to this. We, you know, we did it with the supervised injecting centre and we can do it with pill testing. I found it really helpful when they just had that Q&A special on it. It's rare that I watch Q&A, but I did see like five minutes and there was mm. a very smart person saying, you know, oh, well, you know, we don't want to encourage young people to take drugs or what if, for example, the ecstasy that you test is pure you know, they're going to take it, aren't they? And I guess the person who was talking said, well, it's not just about checking whether it's pure or impure, but it's also about providing educational information at the point where they do test so that they might perhaps change their mind and this is the last point of contact they might have with, you know, a well-informed medical professional. And and possibly the only time yeah. they've had contact with a well-informed medical professional people have got the drugs they are going to take them now what we're trying to do and i and I, in many ways i see the testing side a bit of as a loss leader it, yeah. it brings people into the tent it brings people to a medical professional who can speak to them about the harms that this drug um, can havoc can re- reap upon you uh, to talk about the dangers to have conversations about are you on any other medication did you know that if you are on an antidepressant this drug could affect you in a different way did you know if you mix this with alcohol mm. it could affect you in this way did you know and and most people don't know because we don't have that kind yes. of really honest um, health information about drugs, we say don't do them, they're bad for you. And there's so much, so much stigma and discrimination and um, fear around drug taking that no one is going to talk to their doctor. Mm. Um, you know, if they've been given a prescription for something, are they going to say, how does this affect me if I take ecstasy or how does this affect me if I take ketamine or, you know, no one's asking those questions of their doctors. So this, it is, it is a wonderful health resource and that is what they have found overseas. It's been an enormous health resource. It has helped numerous people to make smarter decisions about their drug taking. Yeah, well, you can only hope for that at the point where if someone's passed police at a music festival That's and right. it wasn't found. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, yes, we witnessed it firsthand in the UK. Uh, the ACT is doing their second trial uh, in a couple of weeks' time. it's New Zealand is moving towards pill testing and it has been undertaking it regularly. Uh, we're, we're falling behind and we have the highest level of ecstasy use in the world, in this country, and we have one of the dirtiest drug markets in the world. So, you know, the, the results from the ACT test were remarkable as in how bad 
our drugs were and and how um, adulterated they were with toxic chemicals that um, could really give people real harm. Fiona, I know we have to wrap up, but I just wanted to quickly touch on the um, safe injecting rooms mm. because some data came out from Ambulance Victoria yes. about call-outs. Mm. And you've made a comment about the data and also how it might be improved, hopefully, yeah. over time. Did they say it was 7% in terms of the reduction in overdoses? But there has been a reduction in ambulance call-outs that's quite significant. Yes, that's right. Look, I think, you know, I, I have to say I, I was hoping for, be- for, for better results. I'll, there is no doubt. But the centre is at capacity. They can't fit any more people in. And they are not open, I don't think, for the right number of hours. Yeah, and so at the right time. That's, that's right. So yep. they're open during the day and that's great and it, they've saved hundreds of lives. They've seen thousands and thousands of people. They've referred hundreds and hundreds of people to other health services, which is brilliant. Like they, they are doing an absolutely amazing job, mm. but we need to, to assist them. So the ambulance call-outs are right down when the centre's open. Yes. But they're up when the centre's closed. We were seeing an escalating drug use in Richmond, and that hasn't changed. You know, that the, that the level of drug use is, is increasing. But mm. I think we did see probably the council back off a little bit and the police back off a little bit in their enforcement and that really has affected the amenity for the residents of Richmond and the centre's not open when they're going out to dinner. The centre's not open when they're out taking their dogs for a walk Mm. or taking their kids for a play in the park in the summer evenings. I asked the government to extend the hours for summer last year and I, I actually thought that they had agreed to do it. So I've been really disappointed, but I think they need to urgently do that and they need to do that right now. And then there are other things that I think we can do to to really make that centre work. The centre is working, but it's it's not having the same effect that we wanted it to because yeah. it's not open enough. Well, it's during work hours. It's between 8 and 7. Mm. And obviously if you've got daylight savings, That's it's right. daylight till about 9. That's right. Um, and obviously many people might take drugs at night time That's or right. in the very early hours of the mornings. That's right. And the, the new and people can't get in because it's it's absolutely packed, which is yeah. a, which is wonderful that it's being that used. People, that people are using it. But still, there's some people who can't use it. Um, it's only six months in, so there's some people who are still resistant about using it, mm. and that is understandable. I mean, these are people who've been locked out of, you know, health systems largely for most of their lives. Um, but yes, the extended hours would really assist and. Sydney is open till 9.30 every day. And they also, they, they open shorter hours on weekends, which makes absolutely no sense. And again, you know, if we're talking about improving the amenity of the area, and, you know, we are talking about saving lives, absolutely. Mm. But one of the other... If you're a resident or just someone passing through. That's right. And, yeah. you know, Victoria Street is wonderful and it should be vibrant and it yeah. should be wonderful and people, you know, are feeling you know, the effects of that open drug market, you know, particularly on a Saturday evening and the centre's not open, you know. So I think, you know, we need to get the centre open at least until dark. 
Sounds very sensible. Doesn't it? Very reasonable. <laughs> very rational. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good one. Uh, thank you so much, Fiona, for coming in. And really um, delving more deeply into these policy issues that affect us at the state level that we don't really get to discuss. So No, that's right. Yeah. Always happy to do that. Thank you. I'm really delighted to have with me a Professor of Australian Studies and he is based at Deakin University. He was also affiliated with the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne and his name is Professor David Walker and he's written an essay for the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine which has just come out and uh, the, on the cover the title is Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century and uh, in the, on the inside of the, the journal... Um, the shorter title is Significant Other. So um, I'm welcoming David now, and thank you so much, David, for joining us. Not at all, Amy. Uh, it's so fascinating to see the, another side of history that I hadn't actually encountered, and um, that's saying something because I actually studied Australian history and this period quite a lot, but it, it hadn't really come up. The other side of the White Australia debate or discussion, we're often told about the the kind of White Australia policy, this idea of a pure race uh, that Australia seemed to be quite preoccupied with and made its official policy for a number of years. But in this essay, you really take us on a journey around where um, this idea of Asia came from, Australia's perception of Asia and the various countries that make up that massive region, um, and also that Australians weren't all necessarily um, critical or hostile to the idea of uh, Asian immigration. So um, in terms of this issue where, um, in terms of the title, uh, that is in this, or sorry, the subtitle in the title of your essay, um, Western Outpost. Can you tell us about the what that refers to? Yes, I mean, the, um, the essay begins really uh, in the 1820s. It starts way back, uh, which for a foreign affairs journal is a very worrying place to start <laughs> because they don't like to go back that far. But but in the 18, late 1820s, there was an argument um, that Australia would be um, greatly benefited if it had um, Chinese immigrants. <laughs> Apologies for the cough, Chinese immigrants, because the the notion was that it was a continent um, that really demanded uh, development. Uh, the Chinese, according to the the writer Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who who was the person talking about systematic colonisation of Australia, uh, Wakefield argued that the Chinese had uh, tremendous uh, capacities as agriculturalists. Uh, they'd had a proven record both in China and through Southeast Asia, and that their skills would be very uh, useful in Australia as well. So that Australia would be turned in his language from a wilderness uh, which is hardly a very correct uh, characterization of Australia but would be turned uh, from a wilderness into a productive garden so the idea appears fairly early on that, that a Chinese or an Asian influence or, or um, dimension to Australian development would be uh, very beneficial would be very 
uh, helpful. And part of that argument, or keyed into that argument, is the notion that the Australian continent itself is either part of Asia or um, belonging in some ways within an Asian setting or region. So that uh, idea comes in very, very early, and that if the if you like, the essence of the continent is, it, is as much Asian as it is uh, European or Aboriginal, then maybe it needs an Asian import or an Asian dimension to make it uh, to work properly. So the outpost idea is, OK, the British have settled this place and they're trying to turn it in to, uh, in some sense, a replica of, of Britain stroke Europe. But underneath that, there's this idea that there's a, a kind of an Asian um, impulse or an Asian undertow that will continually draw European Australia towards Asia. And that if Australia is to succeed, that it needs to notice or pay attention to uh, to that uh, dynamic. Well, that's so interesting. And you talk about you know that early example of Edward Gibbon Wakefield in the 1820s, and then you follow that through with further primary evidence from others um, who followed Wakefield. Uh, for example, you write about um, in 1888 uh, Minister Reverend James Jefferies, who had a a multiracial vision of Australia's future and you write, quote, he imagined how Chinese, Japanese and Indian settlers could contribute to a glorious new Australia. Each would bring distinctive attributes. And uh, and then you also follow with some further um, examples. What was really striking to me was your example about the Sydney Morning Herald arguing that an infusion of Chinese blood would prevent white settlers from degenerating into a soft and spongy race in Australia's hot climate. That, when reading those um, evidence pieces together, was very striking and not the narrative that um, many people would understand to be part of 19th century Australia. Yes, absolutely. I I think that's uh, one of the points I was trying to make, so I'm so pleased that you picked it up. Yes. But, um, yeah, it's a kind of lost uh, narrative in a way because it doesn't fit the the mainstream story terribly well. So often uh, when you've got a big story running and um, uh, things come along that don't fit it very well, it's easier to leave them on the cutting room floor Mm. to try and integrate them. But the yeah, the, the um, Sydney Morning Herald argument is a very interesting one because it goes to the the question of, of climate, which refers back to my earlier point, that if you try to assess the nature of the Australian continent, it's certainly warmer than the United Kingdom. And the top third of Australia, maybe the top half of Australia, lies either within or near the tropics. So... A fair part of Australia is is tropical, and in the thinking of the 19th century in climate-related uh, thinking, which is also very close to racial thinking, um, that is, particular racial uh, characteristics are determined by climate, then Australia is very 
ambiguously situated racially, you know, that the northern part of Australia is seen to be as least as much Asian as it might be thought uh, European. And even coming down into what the, the southern parts of Australia that we might now think of as more Mediterranean in climate, there's still the view that these places are hotter than the United Kingdom, which had framed the, you know, the Anglo-Celtic race. So again, the argument is that ra- the climate will change the racial characteristics of Australians and that in order to kind of fortify them or protect them, going back to the Sydney Morning Herald argument about the soft and spongy race, what you might need is an infusion of, uh, of Chinese blood to um, help withstand the climatic pressures that... Uh, that Australia will necessarily bring to the colonising uh, enterprise. So you need you need to strengthen and fortify. Now, these are all racial arguments that we wouldn't take terribly seriously now. Uh, and going back to Jeffress, he had fixed attributes for each of the categories that you mentioned there. So the Chinese are hardworking, uh, the Indians are spiritual, and the Japanese have got... Um, you know, clever craft and uh, artistic uh, sensibilities. So you, none of them could become the other. You know, you couldn't be Japanese and spiritual or Chinese and artistic or Indian and hardworking because <laughs> you, were, you were labelled, you had, you had your racial label. So Jeffress is coming from a racialized uh, set of arguments around, um, uh, you, you know, that are prominent in the late 19th century. But nonetheless, it's a very interesting um, representation of what a multiracial Australia might look like. And it's not a horror story, as many of the late 19th century depictions of racial mixing were. So he's running against the horror story idea. He's saying this might be pretty terrific. You know, we might get something really unique and interesting, uh, creative and worthwhile from these, uh, the, the, this mixing and mingling of the races and their uh, various attributes. So that idea, again, um, is not well presented through the histories um, because it, it seems such, uh, in, in some ways, it seems such a minority view that you need hardly take any notice of it. But one of the other arguments I would run, although I didn't, present this for the Australian Foreign Affairs uh, article is that an argument that might seem pretty marginal in one period can become much more dominant in a later period. So in some ways you need the marginal voices, you need to attend to the marginal voices because you might hear something there that later on uh, really becomes a much more dominant uh, narrative. And I think that's part of what's happening here. You're getting people experimenting with the idea of a more fluid understanding of race, uh, a more fluid understanding of how uh, racial identities might be formed and reformed in Australia and how there might be benefits uh, to be derived from that. So they're playing around with the idea of of something beneficial or hopeful or optimistic coming from this which is certainly a minority view in the 19th century but if you leap forward a century into 
um, you know, multicultural Australia and the celebration of diversity and all the rest of it, then that's become in some ways the dominant narrative of our uh, of contemporary Australia. You know, we we are all embracing diversity and we love diversity and all the rest of it. So uh, that argument has gradually um, risen to the surface to become a much more powerful one in our uh, society today. Yes, and if we follow through the thread or the idea that continues to get developed uh, into the 20th century, particularly in the 1930s, we saw the rise of eugenics and a fascination with blood and um, race and mixing and all of those kind of elements um, that, you know, is often referred to in a a really um, negative light. We see a whole range of constructions of the ideal Australian body or the ideal Australian uh, male. But there's also another current which continues on this idea that you've identified in the 19th century, which was an ideal of a new Eurasian stock, which you um, reference a range of people talking about and imagining and that was so in um, 1949 by demographer W.D. Borry and you follow on and and talk about the Eurasian ideal. Um, You say the Eurasian ideal was always seen as European Asian never as black white which was unacceptable to race theorists. So where did that Eurasian idea go? How long did it kind of hang around as, as an ideal? Well, I mean, I think the, in some ways the Eurasian argument has um, made a bit of a resurgence re- recently. So <clears throat> there's now more discussion about Australia being a, a Eurasian nation. And one of the other uh, observations I make there is that in 1983, I think it was, Paul Keating said that Australia would become the first Eurasian nation. And the Eurasian, the Eurasian idea has, um, you know, made a bit, of a, a bit of a comeback. But part of my argument there is that it was always embedded in a pretty racialized kind of language, and you've identified part of that because it was always seen, and getting back to that need to to have an infusion of Asian blood, uh, the, the old Sydney Morning Herald argument, that we need, we need Asia because Asia might, or, or an Asian infusion, because Asia might prepare us for the continent that we've inhabited. But we absolutely don't want Aboriginal um, bloodlines to, to be strengthened and continued because they're relegated to a different category racially. So they're, they're seen as inferior in a way that, um, you know, Chinese bloodlines are not. I mean, there are people who will obviously say and do obviously say very, very negative things about the Chinese. But there's another kind of division operating there that um, in the fancy language of the late 19th century, some races were regarded as evanescent or passing races. You know, they disappear. So, And their bloodlines were considered to be... Um, weak. So Aboriginal Australians were thought of as evanescent, an evanescent race who would pass. Their bloodlines would uh, would diminish and finally, uh, you know, fade away. But the 
Chinese were never regarded in that light at all. I mean, the Chinese were regarded as being a very powerful uh, bloodline, which is part of the reason why the, the, uh, you have the fanaticism around white Australia, you know, that one drop of Chinese blood uh, is going to prove uh, so enormously powerful that you will never get rid of it. So there's, there's a kind of argument there that um, the Chinese are particularly worrying because of the strength of their their bloodlines and indeed the depth the depth of their civilization you know you won't you won't breed them out let them in you won't breed them out so the the Eurasian idea has its origins in that um, notion of Australia as an ambiguously placed continent somewhere between Europe and Asia so we're going to need an infusion of of Asian blood to survive, but it's it's always couched in, as I say, in a in a white stroke Asian or European Asian framing, never as a as a, a European Aboriginal or European uh, African American framing. So the the term uh, maybe I'm being too much the historian here, but it seems to me that the Eurasian ideal is fatally compromised by its uh, by its racial history you know that it's such a difficult term to um to renovate for contemporary purposes if you like and no australian future whatever that future might be but no australian future can seriously contemplate a worthwhile uh, place for itself without aboriginal australia being you know factored into those calculations of who we are, what we are and what, what we want to become. Yes, you highlight there such a really interesting tension that still exists um, around identity and uh, facing Asia and seeing it as part of our future, which you really highlight at the beginning of your essay, um, that Asia has pretty much always been couched as a future-looking prospect um, and that has also I guess hindered our progression perhaps in the in the way that we interact with various countries in Asia and how we also perceive our own uh, self as, as Australia in terms of that that future-looking um, focus why did that come about well yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> how, long, how long have you got? Um, it's. I think it's partly the the nature of the Australian settlement project itself. You know, we began with convicts. Um, the past wasn't serving us terribly well. You know, it's not a past you necessarily wanted to look back to. First of all, it was seen to be a pretty shallow one, but there was also seen to be a pretty ugly one. You know, all these criminals and ne'er do wells. Um, were the, uh, the stock from which we came. And then if you didn't take seriously Aboriginal culture and in, uh, in the 19th century you didn't know how deep that culture was anyhow, you know, because you were still working on biblical time frames which, which didn't allow much uh, depth for Aboriginal history at all. So uh, the future was always one of the tropes or framings of... Where Australia, Australia was always had had a world ahead of it, but never a world behind it, and the future was seen to be 
really one of our great uh, strengths and attributes, one of our great glories. You know, we we would create something um, out of out of the freedoms that we enjoyed, and indeed the lack of a past was often represented as being a good thing because that wasn't going to hold us back. We weren't going to be tied back to, you know, traditions and conventions and old patterns of thinking and so on. We were we were new people, but the Asian future idea goes goes deep into the 19th century because the the idea of rising asia which we commonly associate with the 1980s 1990s and after was really an idea beginning to emerge in the late 19th century so the idea that asia was on the rise um dates from the 1880s and the 1890s so you have the Meiji Restoration in Japan in the late 1860s. So Japan is miraculously transformed and across a generation becomes one of these uh, sort of miracle nations across the Pacific, you know, strong navy, strong army, cohesive, um, artistic um, and all the rest of it. So there's that there's that sense that you've got rising Japan, you've got very, you've got populous China, and that these and Australia is located in the Pacific. So the future is is looking increasingly oriented to the Pacific. So shifting from the Atlantic to the Pacific, Australia sits in the Pacific. The future is increasingly couched as an Asian future, and that Australia is the continent most um, directly located to face that future. So in a way, the other dimension of this argument is that of all the European societies on Earth, Australia is the one that will first encounter the impact of rising Asia. Australia is the first continent that will have to think about and respond to uh, the new... Uh, cultural, political, and economic power of Asia, and that's a that's an, again an argument that comes up in the 1890s. There's you know Charles Pearson, um, uh, a kind of late 19th century educator, intellectual historian in Melbourne, um, writes a book called National Life and Character: A Forecast, and Pearson argues exactly that case. I mean, his contention is that that Australians are the first Europeans in the world who will see uh, and have to come to terms with the rise of Asia, who will understand the profound implications of that geopolitical change. And that's a very, very interesting argument, I think. And so that, that pops up pretty early on. You know, that's, that's an 1890s argument. So around the... The, the world of people who are thinking uh, geopolitically and wondering about Australia's place in the world, um, Asia begins to figure more and more prominently in their thinking. Now, a lot of that thinking is is predicated on danger and alarm, and there's a certain amount of invasion writing that takes place uh, from the 1880s uh, onwards, which argues that Australia is vulnerable to an Asian takeover, which is one of the other themes running through that essay. You know, when people think about, are we Asian yet? 
historically that argument would be have we been overtaken by have we been invaded by uh, have we been subsumed uh, into or, or incorporated into Asia yet so a lot of the invasion writing argued that uh, Australia was so vulnerable to an Asian takeover that it would become Asian unless we managed to build up our defences and our security and so on and so forth but the you know there's still sitting beneath that is this other argument about um, like, like for example there's a guy I think I quote in that essay uh, who says before the First World War that Japan will become Australia's major trading partner so in the futurist uh, language about Asia, there's the invasion story, but there's also, you know, the, the, the story about big markets and cultural and social and other opportunities that, that uh, await Australia in Asia. Yes, and the the better known discussions around Australia's earlier ties with Japan, uh, mainly around the economy, as you say, but also defence and the fact that the British Empire were stepping away to some extent from um, committing to provide assistance to Australia whenever they require. And obviously, Australians were concerned that they that Britain would send Japan to come and defend Australia in various circumstances. We then see further anxiety in that um, anxiety around the invasion narrative that you've just been describing um, with the bombing of Darwin. And then even up until, you know, last year, we've seen more discussion around the word invasion and also the concept of, of an infiltration or invasion of our telecommunication systems and defence um, systems. And, and that's something which you know, continues on. And I was interested in your reference to Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, which has come out recently around that and and that you write that uh, his claim exaggerates the reality. It's certainly um, dangerous to overemphasise something like um, Chinese government interference when, you know, there's only so, so many ways you could verify it if you're not part of ASIO or... Asus. Yes, yes. I think I think the the concern I had there with the um, with that uh, with that book was partly the title, uh, which plays to a whole uh, raft of invasion related uh, speculation in and beyond Australia, but. You go back to 1888 and um, there's William Lane, White or Yellow, a story of the Asian invasion of Australia in AD 1908. So the idea of Asian invasion as being Australia's future, mm. that they'll just uh, sweep in and take all, you know, carry all before them, has a long history in our, in our population. And it's often... Uh, the most uh, common framing of what an Asian future will look like. You know, it's going to be invasive. They're going to take us over. So to propose a uh, sober work of analysis about the possible impacts of Chinese technologies and uh, Chinese government uh, potential and actual interference in Australian affairs 
by inserting the word invasion into that title strikes me as being um, you know fairly opportunistic both opportunistic and mischievous uh, really it's it's an attempt to grab it attention which I think has been um, on the whole successful <laughs> but, yes. um, you know I, I don't I don't see it as a very responsible way of arguing what's a pretty serious uh, set of propositions around um, you know who we are where we are and who's trying to um, um, you know shape our future Yes, and uh, there's also a distinction between China, the Chinese government, and also Chinese immigrants who have um, who were either born in China and have immigrated to Australia, or those who have descended from um, immigrants and who were actually born here and have Chinese heritage, for example. Um, so yeah, it can be a bit dangerous. Um, and you do reference the data that George Megalogenis uh, has analysed around the proportion of uh, people who are of an Asian background, um, particularly we've seen such a rise in uh, Asian backgrounds with international students. So I wanted to head to, um, before we finish this interview, the the way that Keating, Paul Keating, our former Prime Minister, saw um, our engagement with Asia or wanted to see it and whether we've even come close to that and whether it is even a, an a good aspiration to have from our perspective or from those in Asia. Um, you, you write that he foresaw a time when more Australians spoke Asian languages and understood Asian cultures where business people familiar with the Asia-Pacific valued Australians of Asian heritage. Our national culture would influence but also be shaped by our Asian neighbours. Um, how, how far have we got in terms of reaching that plan or ideal? Yeah, that's not a bad question. <laughs> the, um, I think in terms of Asia literacy, in some ways that's always struggled. You know, the idea of Asia literacy in the education system, uh, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary, um, has always been from uh, the coining of the term in 1988, has always been a very... Um, a compelling aspiration in a way, but it's been enormously difficult to get um, anywhere near that in terms of uh, Asian language uh, competency uh, within the education system. So the number of students who take an Asian language uh, is not particularly high and um, if anything is, is sort of falling away, but in any event it's not terribly convincing and uh, what are we since um, so over 30 years since since 1988 and the coining of the term? You'd have to say that the uh, the progress towards that has been uh, glacial. And uh, but at other levels, you know, there's a lot of uh, between Australia and Asia at a people to people level. So I think a lot of those people to people connections. Um, are stronger. Um, I also spent three years at Peking University recently and I have to put in the... There are now over 30 Australian Studies Centres in China which um, examine one or other aspect of Australian society, you know, politics, culture, language, uh, international relations, economy and so on. So at at the educational level there are interactions and connections 
and most universities now um, are really uh, very, very um, indebted to their um, Asian-based or Asian-origin academics, uh, many from mainland China, working in the sciences in particular. And, um, and, and so a lot of the research that's coming out of Australian universities is coming from from uh, academics of an Asian and nothing particularly Chinese background. So there's a lot happening uh, away from the uh, headlines around Asia literacy, uh, I think. I think of the level of government. Uh, it's been pretty disappointing. It's been inconsistent. You know, you get um, the Gillard White Paper, which is about engagement, and then within three weeks of uh, the Abbott government coming in the white paper is archived so you know you throw that away and then each new government and this is an argument that george megalogenes also makes in that issue of the of the journal that we've had we've had a problem with rookie prime ministers you know they don't have a strong understanding of foreign policy um they're in power for three weeks uh, they're thrown out by someone else um and so on and so we've got a constant churn of people with different agendas and different arguments and often different language you know so the, the language keeps changing around who we're engaging with and what asia is and all the rest of it so for uh for your listeners um much of this is extremely confusing you know what what are we what is asia what are we engaging with uh what are we supposed to get out of it what are they supposed to get out of it uh, all the rest of it um, it's uh, something that we need to uh, have a more measured, thoughtful, considered and consistent discussion about, I think. Mm, yes, it's often you know, abstract in terms of our discussion and commercialised. And I think um, to, to cap off our discussion, I really liked your comment uh, about needing to get to know them as people not just as customers which I think is often the dominant way that at least the political class uh, refer to people from um, the Asia Pacific Yes, yes thank, thank you for identifying that very profound and worthwhile observation uh, Amy, yes. I don't know what this big noise is happening here Oh, that's, uh, that's a phone which we'll ignore <laughs> but um, Yes, I mean, the, the customer idea is also an interesting attempt to sort of um, take the racial dimension out of it. So if the Chinese are, are represented as Chinese, that can be a bit worrying. If you turn them into customers, that's obviously a good thing because you don't have to worry about them quite so much then because they're just buying your stuff. But the problem with the customer formulation is that um, you need to know the cultural dynamic of of um, Chinese buying practices. You know, why are Chinese wanting this product rather than that product? Or what makes them interested in, you know, brand names or whatever it is? Um, and in order to understand that, you need to understand contemporary Chinese society and culture. You need to know what's, you know, what's driving it, what's making it tick, what's making it work. And, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a cultural, social understanding of the Chinese, of Chinese society and the Chinese people. Um, and customers is not going to do it for you. I mean, it might, mm. it might um, you know, calm nerves here, but it absolutely doesn't help you um, 
you know, work out what your future in this region is going to be. David, you have done some fascinating work and it's so valuable to us today. And uh, yeah, as a historian, it's um, it just highlights how important history is to our current day perceptions of ourselves and others and, and how we live our lives now. So I really appreciate your, um, your article and also congratulate you on all the work you've done in this field and uh, mention that you have a new book coming out called Stranded Nation, White Australia in an Asian region, um, which is out through University of Western Australia Press, um, so people can look that look up that as well as read your essay if they're interested. And uh, thank you so much again. Yes, thank you, Amy, and thank you for the, the questions and the interview. It's my pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. That'll be great. Thanks so much, David. Okay. That is Professor David Walker, who is uh, a professor in Australian Studies at Deakin University and he's also affiliated with the Asia Centre at the University of Melbourne and he's written an essay in Australian Foreign Affairs magazine called Great Australian Divide, The Western Outpost Faces the Asian Century and is an excellent essay beautifully written and um, just so rigorous uh, historically and highlights such a range of evidence that we do not draw upon often around these issues of race and multiculturalism etc so uh, do look that up if you're interested i'm amy mullins and you've been listening to the uncommon sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.